Please note, this podcast contains discussions related to death and suicide. These topics, narratives, insights and discussions may be distressing or triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Dr. Maddie Cassidy and I was a state pathologist in Ireland from 2004 to 2018. Welcome to my podcast, Life in Death, brought to you by Goalout. I'll be taking you through the world of pathology and forensics, digging deep into the roles of experts in crime, from the crime scene to the law courts. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Brian Farrell, who was a coroner in the city of Dublin for many years. He was one of the first people I met on my path to becoming state pathologist. Welcome, Dr. Brian Farrell, or should I just call you Brian? Please call me Brian. Welcome to my podcast. I'm going to have a chat with you, but we've also got our friend, Paul Carson. Uh, good morning, Paul. Morning, Brian. Brian, we go way, way back. You were one of the first people I met when I came over to, to Ireland. Perhaps you don't remember, or maybe you do remember our first meeting. Oh, I remember it. I remember it very well. I was trying to entice you to come from Glasgow to Dublin. Yeah, I think we arranged to meet in the mortuary. Was that right? That's right. It was the day of the Grange Gorman murders. Uh, I know. Strangely well, what, enough. What a propitious day. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're a smooth talker, Brian. How to, how to entice a woman by asking to meet in a mortuary. I, I'll, never for, I'll never forget it, Paul, because it was the old Victorian mortuary. It had a certain yeah, charm yeah, about yeah. it, shall we say. I know. <laughs> I was embarrassed, though, that it wasn't up to health and safety standards, you know. And, of course, uh, I think just after you came, I knocked it down. Yeah, it wasn't long before that. I'll never forgive you for doing I, that. I know, you were, very, you, were very, you were very displeased, I know. But really, it wasn't up to the standard at all. Well, I was delighted. So. I was delighted you knocked it down, <laughs> unfortunately. I, I understand the relevance of it as a historical building, but um, no, it was time to go time. Brian, what I want to do today is to discuss your role as the coroner for Dublin City and then latterly as for the, the Dublin County as well. Yes. Because I, I don't think a lot of people really understand who the coroner is and what their role is in investigation of mm-hmm. deaths. And to be fair, and I'll put my hand up to it, before I came to Ireland, I wasn't really aware of the ins and outs of the coroner because I'd been used to a very different legal system in Scotland. I'd come from a system where I was dealing with a procurator fiscal. Um, They were the person who were charged with not only investigating the death, but then prosecuting someone thereafter. So this was a learning curve for me. And I think what people don't understand and don't realise, and I get the same as well, is that we both started out as doctors, ordinary doctors, and then we both took different paths. My path led me into forensic pathology. Your path led you to being a coroner. Yes. Explain, Dr. Farrell. Well, first of all, I worked in the uh, procurator fiscal system in the Royal Infirmary in Glasgow, so I'm familiar with that system Mm -hmm. as well. Um, But do you know there was a coroner in Scotland in the past? No, I didn't know that. Up till the mid-1700s. And then uh, Scotland took a different pathway because their legal system is a combination of common law and civil law, Mm -hmm. uh, unlike our system, which is purely common law. 
In any event, the coroner system in Ireland is almost the same as the coroner in England and Wales. Yes. And of course, there is a medical legal death investigator in all countries, I guess. In the common law countries, it's the coroner. In Scotland, as we said, it's the procurator Uh fiscal. On the continent of Europe, it will be a medical examiner, a magistrate. And, you know, in the states in America, I think half of, of the states are medical examiner and half are coroners still. And the medical examiner is different because it's a pathologist rather than a legal person. Yeah, because the coroner in England and Wales, and presumably to some extent in Ireland, goes way back to medieval times. Yes. I mean, it is an ancient post. Uh, It was established first, as you said, in 1194 in England, in the reign of Richard I. Mm -hmm. That's Richard Coeur de Lyon, the Lionheart, so-called. So his chancellor, Walter Hubert, uh, was responsible for initiating the coronial system. The coroner really existed in another form, Prior to that, magistrates or officers of of the hundred, for example, the bailiff or the sergeant, and and in the county, uh, the sheriff. Mm -hmm. So Walter uh, amalgamated some of the functions of these officials and uh, added in the death investigation of homicides, suicides and prison deaths. And so the coroner emerged, I think it was 1194, in the Articles of Air. But really, the coroner is really a creature of the common law of England. The first statute was De Officio Coronatoris, of what things the coroner should inquire. Uh, Ultimately, by the, I suppose, the 17th century, mostly involved in death investigation, having lost a lot of the administrative functions that were originally there. What's the role of the, the modern coroner? I mean, I mean, you took up practice. When, when did you start off as a, as a coroner? 1991. Right. What, but I had experience of coroners for many years before that as a pathologist. Mm-hmm. I used to go to uh, coroner's courts to help out coroners around the eastern seaboard. Yes. And I was familiar with coroner's practice. And uh, I suppose I felt that, well, the practice is different greatly between... Um, coronial districts, mm-hmm. and I thought it would be, uh, I'd like to be involved in developing the the practice and procedure, and that's why I originally got into uh, being a coroner. Because, mm. as I say, it's an interesting diversion, because both of us probably had some interest in death investigation in some shape or form, but as I say, I took the path into forensic pathology, um, dealing with the, the violent deaths, but you took the other another path, which is, at that stage, the coroners were a mixture of lawyers and doctors. They still are in Ireland. In England and Wales, they're mainly lawyers now. And in Northern Ireland, they're all lawyers. Uh, I think we're, we're one of the few jurisdictions where both doctors and, and lawyers may be appointed. Yeah, there's an argument for and against both systems. I mean, I think yes, as a yes. forensic pathologist coming up against your into your court, knowing that um, you could pull the wool over your eyes because not only had you your medical background, but you'd been a pathologist as well. So you'd seen what I had seen. And you so you knew very well if I was trying to fudge the issue or not answering a question quite the way you had wanted it answered, you you were the one who could step in. So it must be quite daunting for young pathologists to come into a coroner's court knowing that the coroner actually knows more than you do. Yes, I, I suppose I could see through it all, really. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, I didn't say anything, as you know. <laughs> no, you were very good, very good as a straight man. <laughs> How do you get involved in a, in a death in the first instance then, Brian? Basically, um, the coroner is involved in the investigation of sudden, unexpected death, unnatural death and violent death. 
So basically, any debt where, uh, or any debt where a doctor has any issue about um, the circumstances, or hasn't seen the patient within the previous month. It's a month in Ireland, 14 days in England and Wales, and it's 28 days in Northern Ireland. So any time, if the last consultation wasn't within those time periods, then the coroner has to be spoken with. It doesn't mean it's going to become, uh, that phone call will result in a, an autopsy or anything like that. Uh, we discussed the case with the doctor, and the coroner has the power to extend the uh, time. And uh, uh, so basically all sorts... Sorry, Brian, don't want to jump in over you, but what do you mean by extend, extend the time? Well, well, for example, a doctor might not have seen the patient within the last 28 days, or in our case, within a month, but may well know, will know the background of the, uh, to the patient's condition and know the uh, issues that the patient has uh, suff- suffered, the illnesses that the patient had. And it may well be that the doctor is able to uh, give the coroner an informed opinion uh, as to the likely cause of death. So we would then uh, look at the circumstances, not only with the doctor, but with the Garda involved, and indeed with the family members. And it may well be that uh, while the doctor is technically out of time in regard to the statutory requirement for signing the certificate, we may be able to extend it for a reasonable period, several weeks before that, to allow the doctor to sign up, even though he, he or she wasn't with the patient during the, the particular legislative time period. And then I would send a covering a note to the Registrar of Births and Deaths, uh, allowing the doctor to sign up, even though the last consultation was outside statutory time. But we would have to be satisfied that we understood the circumstances. There was no issues involved. It was natural causes. uh, And there were no collateral issues or concerns on on the part of any third party. And of course, the the registrar is uh, one of your watchdogs, really, because they are perusing the the death certificates coming in from, from, from GPs and from hospital doctors and alerting you to any that might they might think maybe we should perhaps have a further investigation into this death. Absolutely. Um, when I was appointed, there was very little interaction between the coroner's office and the registrar's office. That's the registrar of births and death. Subsequently, we, had, we, we were more proactive with the registrar's office as time went on. Almost every other day now, the registrar will be on forwarding certificates or bringing certificates to the notice of the coroner. Uh, looking for guidance in relation to what's written on the certificate and uh, getting the coroner's opinion as to whether or not the certificate is satisfactory. So we may then contact the GP, discuss the matter, and then if things are okay, we would reassure the registrar and uh, send our our, uh, certificate allowing things to go ahead. Your, your registrar contacted me about five years back and gave out to me rightly because I had sent in a death certificate on a patient who died of liver cancer secondary to hepatitis C infection, which in turn was secondary to an infected blood transfusion. And I had just sent the certificate in, not realizing, in fact, that I should have notified the coroner. Yes, the registrar has a statutory requirement under our law uh, to inform the coroner where he or she is not satisfied in relation to the information received. So that's probably why you were contacted. Things have improved a lot. When I was appointed in 1991, I mean, doctors weren't really up to it neither. On one occasion, a doctor tried to register a stabbing. Mm. 
uh, without informing the coroner. <laughs> we, we moved on a lot from then, of course. But I think, like the case of that Paul mentioned, sometimes when somebody's had a chronic condition, um, like hepatitis C, and people don't really think about the background to that. They've been treating them. They Perhaps they weren't the first doctor to see them. They've just been treating them, the subsequent problems. And even like somebody who comes in as a stabbing, we've both seen cases who come in and linger in hospital for weeks, sometimes months before they die. And of course, the doctor, the little doctor who gets called out at two o'clock in the morning just says, oh, well, he died of pneumonia. Why was he here? Oh, stab wound. And not even thinking, perhaps writes, you know, writes something on a death certificate unwittingly until somebody pulls them up about it, of course. Yes, uh, I've spent uh, about 25, 30 years talking to doctors about this question of causation. Um, the doctor has to think about what brought the patient into hospital in the beginning, ab initio, as you say. Why did the patient present to hospital? It's not always the fact that they've died from multi-organ failure or pneumonia. The, the patient is admitted, goes to A&E, uh, may, may go to the theatre, uh, go to uh, ICU, go to a, a renal department, and then comes to die of renal failure. But what actually brought the patient in in the first place is clearly a very important issue from the medical legal point of view. And often you find that that patient was presented in the beginning from some injury or uh, drug-related matter or something like that. So we've been trying to get this through to doctors for a long time to, to look at the question of causation. What happened in the beginning? Yeah, when, I was te- when I'm teaching or have been teaching medical students, I always say to them, you know, to think about, you know, why were they in the hospital? But also the other thing to say is the coroner is your friend. You know, why, why think, why be worried that... You know, should I phone them? Should I not phone them? I said, phone them. You know, <laughs> any problems at all, just phone them. They'll tell you if you don't need to be, you know, reporting this death. But rather, they be reported. Um, all of this uh, really uh, arose because um, the doctor was, con- the coroner rather, was considered to be the natural enemy of the doctor. And this arose during the Victorian era in particular, when anesthesia was being introduced uh, from the 1840s onwards. There were many deaths under anaesthetic uh, in, the, in the early days. And, of course, the coroner was looking into these matters. And uh, even when I was appointed in 1991, the, you know, I could sense that the profession was uneasy when the coroner would be inquiring into issues within their practice, you know. But hopefully we've, we've reassured doctors over the years uh, of course, we're not the natural enemy of the doctor at all. All we're trying to do is establish what happened to the to their patient. And I do understand that when a, a doctor loses a patient, it, it really is, uh, you know, something really profound. And, and we do understand that. But we're, we're simply trying to establish what happened and um, to put those facts on, on the record. That's what we're about. When your registrar peruses all the death certificates coming in, does he or she ever draw your attention to sort of what might be described as an abnormal pattern of deaths in one, one let's say, one nursing home, one hospital, or under the care yes, of one particular Yes, I think that um, the, the registrars of deaths have become more proactive in recent years. And we, we have an interaction with them almost every, every other day sometimes. You know. As regards patterns... Um, 
I think the office too, because we have a smaller population in Ireland, I think that the, you know, the office too would be aware of patterns emerging. We do try to be aware of that. That's why the yep. medical examiner okay. system has, is now posited and being introduced in England and Wales uh, to screen all debt certificates. Um, and in Ireland, that was raised during the review of the coroner service in 2002. Uh, that all certificates would come into the coroner's office for scrutiny. The problem was then, and still is, that we wouldn't really have the resources to look at all the certificates that are written. Uh, but I think um, that might happen in some form or other in the future, and is already happening in England and Wales. You'll be aware of that, Mark. Yes, I've actually done the training, so I am now a trained medical examiner. <laughs> Oh, all right. Congratulations. <laughs> and that will cause even more confusion because earlier on when we were speaking, when you were explaining how the coroner came about, there in I think it's the, the American situation which causes confusion because they have a medical examiner yes. system which is not the same as the medical examiner system in England and Wales. It's very different. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, so I, I decided that having spent my life... Um, on the cutting end, that it might be easier just to sit with the paperwork and, um, you know, make yes, comments indeed. on what people have done before instead of people criticising me now and again. It's, t it's terribly important. Uh, I, I go around uh, to the doctors as well, talking about death certification and how to do it. It's not well done around the world. No, it's not. Certification it's not. Of death, in regard to setting out the medical cause of death and all of that. And in some situations in... Um, uh, if, you, if you look at situations in other countries, um, uh, there isn't a clear distinction made, in my view, uh, between uh, the natural, natural causes of death and deaths that are uh, uh, potentially of forensic importance. I think another thing people don't appreciate is that of the cases that are reported to you or your, your, your office is informed about particular deaths, only a percentage will there be a full investigation. Yes. So not all cases will come to post-mortem. No, uh, no. Uh, the, the situation with the doctors seeing the patient within the statutory time frame is one. I mean, many of those patients are, uh, you know, are, have been with their doctor, death is due to natural causes. But we do look into, we do a preliminary inquiry with all reports and speak to relevant parties. And we would only... Uh, sign off or acquiesce with the certificate being issued by the GP if all things are equal and there are no extraneous factors involved. So that all the debts that are reported will get an inquiry. Sometimes it's preliminary, sometimes it will require an autopsy to clarify, to establish or clarify the cause of death. And if that autopsy comes back with natural causes and there are no collateral issues causing concern, then we, the coroner will issue the coroner's certificate for death registration purposes. And then about, it, depending on the demographics, um, uh, I think in Dublin, I, we reckon about one-seventh of the reportable cases go to inquest. But those are cases where the cause of death is or may be due to unnatural causes. Um, or there are concerns in relation to the circumstances of the death. So every death is scrutinised at one level or other. What's the procedure, though, if a death is treated as being unnatural? Yes. And that's whether it's accidental death or a suicide or a potential homicide. 
What's the procedure then? Who, who reports this to you and then what happens thereafter? Well, I mean, there is a statutory uh, requirement uh, for all unnatural or violent deaths to be reported. So the, the deaths coming in may be on the face of it. They're, they're due to road traffic collisions or um, drownings, whatever. They automatically will go to the, uh, to the full uh, system autopsy inquest. Uh, other deaths are reported that um, need to be scrutinized. Well, first of all, you start with the scrutiny uh, of the, uh, the natural causes coming in, sudden deaths. But when you talk to the GP, there's a perfectly acceptable certificate that can be written. Um, the, 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 the 1962 Act in, in Ireland just said that it, it, was, there an accept, was there a medical certificate available? We always added the ad- adjective was there a satisfactory certificate available? And if there is, the, the, um, the coroner will accept that and the death will be registered. Uh, if it isn't clear, we'll go to autopsy and then uh, look at the police reports and that and see what the situation is. If there are no issues, as I said, uh, the coroner will register the, uh, the death. Um, but in all other cases, obvious unnatural causes or concerns or suspicions about the death or allegations of negligence or malpractice or whatever, they will all go to inquest. So there's, there's a screening process that we go through with all reportable deaths. And they're significant in Dublin about, uh, I think in uh, 2019, uh, there were about, um, let me see, around uh, 7,000, over 7,000 deaths reported. And I think um, there were about um, around 700 inquests, actually. Does your office instruct any particular pathologist to do these cases? Well, obviously, if, if, if the case is um, a suspicious death or uh, a, an, an obvious, an overt homicide, uh, we would need uh, the assistance of the forensic, or, uh, forensic pathologist, the state pathologist, so-called. Mm. Um, or, or if we had concerns about other circumstances in relation to to a reportable death, uh, we might get the forensic pathologist's opinion and uh, uh, go with that. But mostly uh, our autopsies um, are uh, performed by uh, histopathologists. As you were saying, only a small percentage of these cases will then go on to further investigation and your investigation terminates at an inquest. Well, it doesn't terminate. The inquest is part of the inquiry. Can you just explain what, what the purpose of the inquest is then, Brian? First of all, the cases, they're, they're either unnatural or they're potentially unnatural. And what we're trying to do is establish the circumstances pertaining to the death, what happened to the, to the deceased, uh, how they came to die, what are the factors uh, you know, contributing to death? What is the medical cause of death? So we're, we're, we're putting the facts on the public record um, in, in, an, in open court. Um, and the families and interested parties can ask questions about the circumstances and can be legally represented. Uh, issues arise in relation to circumstances quite often, which we have to deal with at inquests. But we're trying to establish the facts in a non-adversarial manner. So we're not like a, a court of law. We're not, we're not saying that anyone is guilty or not guilty. We're, we're simply establishing what happened, 
placing the facts on the record and then bringing in a, relevant, a verdict in relation to the means by which the death occurred. Then if there are any uh, issues of public health or safety arise at the inquest, we would make recommendations, or, or if we had a jury, the jury might make a recommendation under the direction of the coroner. And, and these recommendations would be uh, addressed to issues or risk factors that have been identified in the hearing and would be forwarded to relevant parties for their information, hopefully to address proactively in the public interest. I think when people hear the word verdict, they're thinking about criminal trials, really, and they're thinking about the verdicts are guilty or not guilty. What's the difference between the verdicts in the coroner's court at, at an inquest versus the, the criminal courts? What are, what are your verdicts? There's a range of verdicts, you probably know. Um, in, in regard to murder, manslaughter and infanticide, the coroner cannot uh, ascribe the blame or wrongdoing to any party and cannot exonerate. So our verdicts have to be neutral. So murder, manslaughter, infanticide would be, in those cases, the verdict would be unlawful killing without distinguishing between the types of culpable homicide. In, in other cases, the death may be, uh, well, the range is accidental, misadventure, suicide, unlawful killing, uh, or open verdict. I, I mean, I'd need to explain these individually. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, um, in my view, an accident is something that, you know, there's no risk factor involved. There's no criminality. Somebody uh, perhaps might just fall into a river or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, purely act of going, just slipped in for some reason. There were no, he wasn't intoxicated, he or she wasn't intoxicated. Um, or there was no question of drugs or alcohol or there was no question of suicide or mm -hmm. whatever, so, or, or criminality. So you have to exclude the other uh, means that death might have uh, be attributed to and you're left then with an accident. Now, most investigations will show that there are risk factors, even in road traffic collisions. We, we never use the word road traffic accident because there's almost invariably there'll be risk factors involved. Uh, so we use the term misadventure, which, which is a, an accident with risk factors. These issues could occur within a, hospital, within a medical setting, and we sometimes would use the adjective medical misadventure for those. Mm. If you come in with, a, with, a, with a, a verdict, for want of a better word, of medical misadventure, does that leave the opportunity for, for legal challenge uh, litigation? against that 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 yeah, lawyers representing doctors are always concerned about this and will try to avoid uh, the adjective medical misadventure but it's a totally neutral uh, verdict it simply means that the unfortunate circumstances occurred in a medical setting that's all it means i've been emphasizing that for years while um, that there is law on this in ireland the evidence given at inquest might uh, amount to negligence in another forum, in a civil court or even in a criminal court. But we don't go there. We're not considering negligence. We're simply considering the circumstances, what those circumstances were, and uh, uh, reflecting that in the verdict. If there were medical circumstances uh, contributing to the death, we could use misadventure as simpliciter. But we have developed a system that we would 
call it medical misadventure, and there sometimes there are legal arguments against that, but I've always reassured lawyers and others and doctors that there's no, there's no implication of negligence within that uh, verdict. Uh, negligence would have to be established uh, pursuant to other criteria in another forum. Uh, then we, the unlawful killing I've already mentioned. The coroner will open an inquest and the Garda may say, look, we're sending the file to the DPP because we're concerned about the circumstances or we're sending the file to the DPP because this clearly is an unlawful killing. If that is the case, we would adjourn the inquest pending the decision of the DPP. And if the matter goes to a criminal court, we would have to wait until the uh, verdict is delivered by the criminal court. Uh, the position then would be that we could sign off on the basis that there are no, uh, the matter has been dealt with fully in the criminal courts. Um, but the coroner has a discretion in the matter to reopen the inquest after the criminal trial. Um, because sometimes the family, and not infrequently uh, by all means, uh, the family might come back saying, look, um, We've been through the criminal trial, but we, the court didn't address certain concerns that we have about the circumstances. And if there is sufficient reason, um, the, court, the coroner will have discretion to revisit the matter. But the point I'm trying to make here is when it comes to the verdict in such, a, in such an inquest, it has to be consistent with the verdict delivered in the criminal court. So we would say that the deceased died by, say, murder or manslaughter, um, uh, as as uh, found in the Central Criminal Court on such and such a date, la la la, etc. If someone has been uh, died by murder or manslaughter, we cannot call it an accident or a misadventure. So we'd have to be ad idem with the criminal courts. Uh, that's just an exceptional circumstance. And, uh, in, in any case where uh, there's no trial, uh, no charges are preferred, then the inquest will be the only forum where the facts are placed on the public record. And there we would return, if the evidence uh, supported it, we would return a verdict, not of murder or manslaughter, but of unlawful killing without uh, mentioning uh, any particular uh, individual. The, the verdict includes findings as well, I should tell you. So there, there's not, it's not just accident, misadventure, homicide, etc. Uh, we also set out the circumstances of what happened. But you're not the final arbiter in a way because, and sometimes I've been giving evidence in court, uh, in, the, in the coroner's court, you haven't been sitting alone, you've been sitting with um, a jury. Um, well, a jury is mandatory in all cases of, uh, in murder, manslaughter, infanticide, there's a list of jury requirements. Uh, previously in Ireland, every road traffic uh, collision had to have a jury. That was, um, I think that section was rescinded under the recent Coroner's Amendment Act of 2019. So there are a certain list of cases that we must have a jury and culpable homicide is one of those. Mm. I presume that the, the jury have listened to the evidence that's been given in the um, court and they have to make up their own minds to a certain extent, but these are lay people. They have got no legal expertise, no medical expertise. And 
Is that a, a challenge for you, directing them in, in a way so that they, they understand the intricacies of a particular case? You know, sometimes some of these murders or even um, suicides are, are fairly complex. Um, how do you deal with that when you when it's not it's not just on your shoulders? There's someone else that you have to rely on to make a decision. Yes, of course, it's no different from really from a criminal court. I mean, the jury are all lay people in, in a criminal court. But yes, you're right. Obviously, you have to inform the jury in relation to the function of the inquest, what, what an inquest is about. Uh, and they will be briefed on that by usually by the court registrar uh, prior to the uh, opening of the inquest. And then the jury are permitted, of course, to ask questions and invited to ask questions. Uh, so when evidence is given by a particular witness, if the family are represented by lawyers, you'll hear from the lawyers may wish to uh, examine the witness. Third parties, we call them interested persons, may wish to examine the witness. And then you will always address the jury in, in, every, uh, in the case of every witness, uh, at the, talking to the foreman or the jurors uh, in general, and inquiring, do they wish to clarify any matter? Uh, and the coroner will put the query of the, the juror, if there is a, a query, to the witness concern. So there's a toing and froing right through the proceedings. And then following the uh, completion of the evidence, um, the, the coroner will have to sum up the evidence, which will be relevant to the decisions that the jury have to make. And also... Um, answer any questions in relation to any uh, of that evidence and then go through the verdicts that are available or potentially available to the jury on the evidence received at the inquest and set out the standard of proof for whatever. If it's a suicide case, you have to, uh, you have to establish that beyond a reasonable doubt in Ireland. Unlawful killing is beyond a reasonable doubt and all the other conclusions or verdicts are on the balance of probability and you have to explain the difference in the standard of proof to the jury. So really, with complicated cases, this can be really uh, a a lengthy process. Uh, And we try to, and then we would take submissions from legal representatives or others in relation to the coroner's charge to the jury. Uh, So uh, the jury will go to the jury room and if there are any issues or arguments within the jury room that they can't resolve, they're entitled to come back into court and in open courts to have that matter dealt with. So I think there are a lot of safeguards uh, there, and you, one does have to be proactive in, uh, <laughs> when there's a jury in panel. I do remember, I do remember a quite high-profile uh, case that, that went through courts here, and eventually when it, when it came to the inquest in your court, the family stood outside those very famous blue doors of the Dublin City Coroner's Court and stated to the media, and, and there was quite a media presence, only in this court has my son been given justice. Yeah, well, that was nice. That's nice to hear, I suppose. It, well, it, 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 it's, it, it's a great testimony to, to the whole process and to, to what went on in your... In well, your I mean, it's really... We've always approached... It is a people's court... Um, the, the bereaved family and uh, relatives and friends uh, are having their day in court. So it's not quite to say that the family are at the centre of the proceedings, but they're there and we're, we understand their issues and uh, we do try to... I mean, they may not always be legally represented, 
And then we have to, it, there's another issue about uh, making sure that they understand the evidence and are given uh, an opportunity to question the witness as well through the coroner in that situation. Uh, I, always, I always hoped that we would achieve some kind of conclusions and information for the family that uh, was of some uh, benefit to them, really. I mean, I always think that the families are the most important people in the court at that particular time. And from the pathologist's point of view, I'm there to make sure that they understand how the death came about, what was the actual cause of death. Because I think what people don't appreciate again is that this family, I mean, they might have been, you know, screaming and kicking coming to the, the court because they had no say in any of this investigation at all. I mean... You, when, you're, when you take charge of the death, then you decide what happens thereafter. And they have no say if Auntie Mary dies in hospital and we think that Auntie Mary, you know, might have had pneumonia and the doctor said, we'd, we'd like to do a post-mortem because we're not quite sure why this particular drug didn't work on your Auntie Mary. And the, the family, that request is made to the family, will you permit us to do this? But once you're the coroner is involved they have no say in that they they can't come back and say well 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 sometimes they do and i don't know they have in some cases they've objected to a post-mortem taking place yes. but unfortunately the law of the land is no once you're involved that it has to go ahead yes we would try to explain to the sometimes families do object as you say and we would try to explain to the family by interacting directly with them the reasons why we need what our function is and the reasons why we we feel an autopsy is required i think i i found it was very important to involve the family in some of these decisions because I, in my experience they didn't understand better and they're not as uh, upset about things you know as regards the inquest hearing uh, you're right the family are very important, but I cannot say they're central to it because I'm supposed to be neutral, mm -hmm. you see. Yes. Um, yeah. But we do take their concerns very, very seriously indeed. On, on the few occasions that I was in the, in the coroner's court listening, I was quite surprised at how often you invited the family, you know, to reassure them and to put questions through you to any, any, any witnesses. You, you went to great pains to make sure what was a horrible day in, in, in court was at least one that gave them this, this word yeah. to be used so much now. I, I, well, closure. I, I, thank you for saying that. Um, I suppose they never really get closure, but it does help them, I think, in their, in their bereavement and all of that. But our function is really, we've got, a fun, we've got to place these facts on the record. But I, I guess we've always tried to do it in a, in a sympathetic way. But sometimes the family do not agree with what we're doing. And uh, again, if one tries, one, you know, tries to explain what's happening and explain why you're putting this range of verdicts to the jury or whatever, I, I, hopefully it helps the family to, to get through. Can they appeal if, you, if they don't agree with the verdict? that was made at that particular time, can they appeal? Is there well, any I've been in the superior them? courts, uh, I think around uh, 15, 16, 17 times, uh, because families have judicially reviewed our mm. decision. And of course they can, and they're entitled. And we, we welcome judicial review ourselves in a way, even though you know, it's not pleasant for a coroner to be judicially reviewed. But it does help to 
I mean, the families, in other words, have a, a sort of an appeal process to the truly judicial review. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I find that uh, they're helpful from the legal point of view as well in getting clarification on certain matters of law that uh, might involve the family's objections. So. Occasionally, Brian, when there is a, an inquest and a verdict comes out, the, the, the coroner's office makes a recommendation about, say, safety procedures or investigative procedures, etc., etc. How how frequently would that happen? Well, what what are the or is there a pattern to to when you intervene we, we frequently to make, make recommendations? recommendations. Um, and uh, it it would be addressing the risk factors that we have identified, factors that might have caused or even contributed to what happened. And we would, uh, we, I mean, over the years, and probably in very many recommendations. Uh, in relation to public health or safety matters. We would follow that up by uh, correspondence with, for example, a government department or a non-government agency or a factory or a hospital, whatever. Um, We sometimes might adopt, uh, we we might find that matters have been reviewed in the hospital by an internal or external hospital review, whatever. Uh, This is not a matter for the coroner, but... um, Sometimes lawyers for hospitals will make us make it known to us that certain uh, recommendations have been made in-house and we would sometimes adopt and uh, support those, add, adding some of our own as well if necessary. So the, I think the, um, the uh, recommendations, and as called in, in Ireland, riders to the verdict, um, uh, hopefully uh, will benefit public health and safety. And I think there's something that is lost, I'm sorry to say, in the medical examiner system in America, where there are no inquests. Yes, I must admit, coming, coming from Scotland, where we didn't have inquests either, we had the fatal accident inquiry, which was very limited in its scope, in that it was only dealing with um, deaths of public interest, or if they thought that there was something specific about a cluster of drug deaths or whatever, where they might have a, an inquiry. And I... Um, Although I, when I came over to Ireland, I was very anti-washing your dirty linen in public kind of thing because these are public courts and anyone can yeah. come, can wander in and anyone can yes. pitch in if they really like. Um, I became a convert over the years because I saw that, going back to what Paul was saying about closure, I think the family felt they were being heard when, when we go to the high courts, when we go to the criminal courts, they have... They're not part of the process at all. They can't say anything. They can't do anything. They, they're, they're just witnesses to what's going on. And I think it's the one time that they feel that they can actually get some answers or can approach the people. And, and very often I've been standing outside the court having given my evidence and somebody will come up and say, would you mind speaking to the mother? And I'd say, no, no. Uh, delighted to speak to them if there's anything I can say to help. And often, as you know, it's the simple things that people want to know. Was the death quick? Did they suffer? Um, Is there anything else you can tell me? And I very often say to them, look, you've had an awful lot of information today and you perhaps you haven't understood a lot of it. Go away, think about it, write down some questions if there's anything you, you want to know and come back to me. And I think that's the same with the with the inquest is that they feel that at this time somebody's going to answer some of those questions. Yeah. And as you know, there are usually it's the very simple ones, but they're sometimes the hardest to, to answer. Yes, yes. I originally went into the, corona, the coronership 
because I was speaking to families after post-mortems. Um, and I tried to carry that on into the inquest hearing and try and invite them to ask questions and get clarifications uh, as they require. But you're right, it's very important. And I, and I think you, you were successful because your court was not intimidating. I think people going into, because they think of it as being a court in a courtroom, I think that um, very much people were made at ease and you were saying, come, come down, you know, come come down into, sit yeah. close so you can listen because people's immediate reaction is, well, I'm in court, I mean, <laughs> stay well yeah. away from the action. Whereas you invited them down and made it more intimate. And I think that encouraged people to feel as if, they were part of the system, they were part of the process and less frightened of putting their hand up and saying, can I ask a, can I ask a yes. question? Because it's, it's quite daunting in that setting to ask a question. Well, we, there is a certain formality, but we try to have a, a sort of a, a relaxed formality and an interaction with the, with the families and, and other parties as well. Well, I think, as I say, I think we're very successful exactly. in that. Have there been instances where you've had a very hostile court courtroom? It isn't rare at all, of course. <laughs> uh, sometimes the, the proceedings are very hot indeed, you know. And families have come in and they, they're very upset and angry, uh, not necessarily with us, but with uh, hospitals or other in other circumstances. Uh, we can't always, def uh, you know, deflate that at all. But we, we try to work through it and make sure we have a thorough investigation so at least they can say, however angry they may remain or whatever, uh, that at least the inquiry went to, uh, into the circumstances in detail. I mean, the public expect a, a, a professional uh, investigation of the death of a family member uh, or a friend or whatever, and that's what we've tried to do, uh, do a, a thorough professional uh, investigation, including the inquest if necessary, and, um, and hopefully try to bring all the facts out and help the family uh, come to terms. We're not always successful, of course, um, but at least uh, I'm mollified if, if at least the hearing has addressed the issues of concern. Thank you, Brian. This is, it has been fascinating for me. It's um, given me a, an insight into what the, the coroner does, and I hope perhaps the general public might have a better understanding. It's fascinating, and I must thank you very much for coming along and speaking to us today. It's been wonderful. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Brian. Great to see you again. Uh, well, uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Life and Death with me, Dr. Mary Cassidy. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud, produced by Jason Ford and Rosie Putnam from Mabel Productions, edited by Rosie, and with music by Sasha Putnam, presented by me and Paul Carson. Next week, we'll be talking to an old friend from my past, Robert McNeil. He's an anatomical pathology technician who was my right-hand man in the mortuary.